They're coming up with a lot of government solutions without looking at the root cause of the problem. And the root cause of the problem is nine times or nine 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 point nine 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 times out of 10, the government. Yeah. <laughs> so you can't double down on failure. And so a lot of these people are trying to come up with a higher minimum wage in order to solve this problem of people making too low of income without understanding why people are making so low of income. Well, Hello, I'm your host, Dr. Vance Gann. Thank you for joining me again today. Well, today I'm delighted to bring to you a bonus episode with Brad Swale of Texas Talks. It's his podcast. Go check it out. Subscribe, share it with your friends and family. And on this particular episode, I talked to him about where I came from, why my calling is Let People Prosper, talk a little bit about property taxes in Texas and the relief that was tried. Didn't provide a whole lot, but there was an attempt to do that. Also, the need for sustainable budgets across the country at the federal level and by all state and local governments in order to provide more opportunities for what? For people to prosper. And we also talked about immigration, the benefits of it, the costs of it, what should be done differently. There's a lot of things to be th thought about there. So we also get into that as well. And tax reform, that's always another big part of this. So we also talk a lot about tax reform. So without further ado, this is my talk with Brad Swell of Texas Talks. It's, a it's great to have you. I I'm looking forward to the conversation. I mentioned quite a few things there. Is there anything else that you wanted to, to mention? I know sometimes people got a lot going on, and I think that you're one of them. Well, Brad, that's true. I, I do a lot of things, wear a lot of different hats. Other things are senior fellow at Americans for Tax Reform. And I'm also a chief economist at the Pelican Institute in, in Louisiana and work with a lot of about 14 other state think tanks across the country on letting people prosper or, you know, getting government out of the way, finding ways for people to have personal responsibility and, and bring up their life as however they see fit along with their family and trying to be as prosperous as possible. So that's what I'm that's what I'm doing each and every day. Well, it sounds like you're the expert to talk to about a lot of stuff then. Appreciate you coming on. So why did you name, why let people prosper? I, that seems like something that everyone wants other people to do, right? It's really what I believe is my calling. Going back a little bit, I grew up in a low-income family home, single mom. My dad had epilepsy and didn't live with us for most of my life. I started playing in a rock band. I was a drummer for a top rock band in Houston. We were a hard rock band. And then, you know, living kind of the rock star life. And I got in a really bad car accident, rolled six times. I was a passenger, front passenger in this car. We were going 120 miles an hour down the frontage road, racing another car, young and stupid. Got life flighted to Herman Hospital with potential head injury and went home really by the grace of God that night. And I had about a month, you know, laying in bed with bruised up and everything, thinking about where my life was heading. I believe that God put a, a calling in my life to let people prosper. And uh, I went on to be a first-generation college student and college graduate with a PhD in economics and got to work in the White House for a while in the, in the Trump administration, Texas Public Policy Foundation, and doing a lot of other things that I get to do today. And it really has been all about letting people prosper. So I think you're right. Like in, in general, it makes common, it's just common sense. But I think too often we forget what are the institutional frameworks, what really gets us to prosper. And that is really what I try to do a lot of work on educating people and getting good public policy out there. I mean, that's quite the story. 120 miles an hour on the frontage road, flipping five, six times, you said. Thankful that you're here. So you're a PhD economist. And, you know, I think the economy, especially with the presidential election coming on, the primaries are, are happening. People are worried about the economy. How would you, are you worried about the economy? No, I'm worried about the economy. I think that we've been on this sugar high for a long time with Congress spending a lot of money running up the national debt to more than $34 trillion now, which if you break that down per taxpayer, I think it's about 
about $280,000 that every taxpayer owes today. It's just a massive amount of money. And it's about 130% of GDP. So you take all the economic output across the economy, and it's about 30% more than that. So this is a substantial amount of national debt that's happening in the economy. And I think that's the biggest national crisis that we have going on. I mean, some people talk about China and the, the stuff in the Middle East and all that. But if we don't get our own fiscal house in order, none of that stuff's going to matter because we can't fund the de national defense. We can't fund Social Security and Medicare and all these other things. And so we really need to focus on that. And so I think that is having a lot of ripple effects for our interest rates and for inflationary pressures, because what, what, what happens is the Federal Reserve, our central bank, they go out and buy a lot of that debt from the Treasury Security, add it to their balance sheet, and then they print money. And that puts more money in circulation. And if the economy, the growth in the economy is not keeping up with that same rate of growth of the money supply, then we have too much money chasing too few goods, which is the classic definition of inflation. And over the last couple of years, people have talked about, well, this was transitory inflation, meaning it was going to go up and then come right back down after the pandemic and everything opened back up again because those supply chains would come back online. And my point was always like, no, this is always going to be persistent inflation with how much that the Federal Reserve has put money in, into the economy. They they more than doubled their balance sheet from $4 trillion to $9 trillion. It's back down to about $7.7 .7 trillion now, but it's still almost twice of what it was uh, February of 2020. And so you have that those things going on. I think you also have a pretty weak labor market. A lot of people have just dropped out of the labor market, stopped looking for a job. And there's some new information out here recently that it's mainly 20, 20, 20 to 24-year-olds. So right there in the early part of their careers. I don't know what else they're doing, but they're doing something else besides going to work. They also got a lot of handouts from government, right, with unemployment benefits and everything else during the pandemic that changes their incentives to work. And I think that has long-term repercussions. And also the people that are dropping out are those without children. In fact, the people with children are working more because we've got to pay for you know, the, the diapers. I've got young kids. Uh, I've got three kids. Uh, one of them is about two years old. So I, I know the cost and the daycare and everything else. And the, there was an idea that maybe more people were staying home because daycare has been so expensive. But the recent research and data from the BLS, Bureau of Labor Statistics, shows that, well, no, it's those with actually without kids that are staying home, maybe living with their parents or doing something else. And so I thought that was quite interesting. And so a, a lot of the headline numbers that we're seeing of the jobs report of GDP growth is driven by expansion of government. And the government is unproductive in their spending. We want to look at the productive private sector and also looked at private jobs. And when you look at those things, it's a much weaker economy than what they're leading on, on to us about from the media and a lot of the talking heads. So I think that we're, we were in a, an unstable and uncertain time in our economy. We've been able to withstand a lot of this stuff here and there because I think the entrepreneurial spirit is very high of Americans, but there's still a lot of things to come in 2024, which may not be good. And, and so that's why I'm here. Glad to talk to you about it. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, you brought up so many points there. I know we're going to get to the unproductive government spending and un unproductive government jobs, stuff like that here in a second. But I, I just, it, something you said just piqued my interest because I do live in Austin and I know that this past legislation, uh, I guess the cities can enact 50 to 100% property tax cuts for childcare facilities. And mm -hmm. Austin's about to vote uh, to this Thursday, tomorrow on giving childcare facilities 100% tax reduction. No property taxes for them. I, you know, anytime someone can get out of paying their taxes, I'm all for it. If the goal is to get people to, you know, have cheaper childcare so they can get back to work or whatever, like you just described, but it doesn't seem like it's necessarily going to work out that way. Yeah. 
It's a great point, Brad. And, and when I was talking about the economy, it was more nationally. Sure. The Texas economy has been more immune to that because we've got an even more dynamic economy than most of the country, which has been great, right? But we need to make sure that we're taking steps to put things in the right direction. And so you're bringing up the property tax, which I, I'd love to talk about the property tax relief in general that was passed last year. But that was one of the components of basically exempting a large amount of daycare property tax that they would have to pay, like you said, maybe 50 to 75%, and maybe even 100% by the city of Austin pitch, pitching in the rest. But something that I would that I like to note is that anytime you're exempting something, that means that someone else is going to pay for it. It just shifts the burden around. So while these daycares may get a lower property tax bill, maybe they'll pass some of that along to those who are the consumer, to, 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 to the parents, right, to pay for that. But it also means that the, the, the parents, me in this case, I live in Round Rock, so outside of Austin, but just in general across the state, that I will pay higher property tax. Because if, you, if they're going to spend $100, that $100 has to be paid for by something. And it's usually sales taxes or property taxes. They have fines and fees and other things too. But those are the two main types of taxes that they collect. And so the property tax, if, they, if you exempt part, part of this from those daycares that cost it's just going to be distributed with higher property taxes for everyone else. And so uh, while I, I get that it's a good idea to maybe try to help out those daycares, the unintended consequence is, is that we're all going to pay higher property taxes and higher tax rates in the process. And what I would like to see is the tax rates keep going down. So that way that the daycare could pay less, I could pay less, you could pay less, and we could all pay lower property taxes until one day, and we talk about this, where I could see, I want to see the day where we don't have property taxes. I think it's a wealth tax. I think it's a capital gains tax. That's unrealized and that should not be taxed in Texas. You're speaking my language here. Okay. <laughs> I, I would love to see that as well. I don't know that I want to wait, but I guess I have to. So, the, all right. So, the national economy is not as great as maybe, you know, here things, it's actually quite good. Why do you guys feel so bad about it? It's so good. And I think Texas genuinely is doing better. I don't, I'm not an economist. I don't know all of the myriad of reasons why, but it is doing better. If there was a, let's say a big recession, which I think everyone sort of, maybe we're in a recession now, maybe it turns into a depression, maybe we come out of it, whatever. Do you think that Texas comes out the other end better than the rest of the country? I think so. And I think that's what we also saw during the Great Recession. Texas did a lot better than the rest of the, the country. Even during the pandemic and, and what I call the lockdown recession, Texas did better coming out of that as well. And, and there's a couple of reasons why. I think a big part of it is what's called the Texas model, where there is no personal income tax, which... Texas just recently put in again in the Constitution saying there's not going to be a personal income tax, which I think it's huge. We're one of only seven states to not have a personal income tax across the country. And so that allows us to be more competitive than a lot of other states that are out there that do have personal income taxes. And some of our competition, you know, the other big states, California just raised as of January 1st, 2024, they just raised their top marginal they have a progressive marginal income tax, right? Of course, California, but their top rate is now 14.4%. They raised it from 13.3 to 14.4. So you wonder why people are fleeing there and coming to places like Texas. That's one of the big reasons. We also have relatively less government spending. I think they did a bad job this last year. We can talk about that. But before that, they have been doing a better job of limiting government spending to no more than something like population growth plus inflation, which is a good measure of the average taxpayer's ability to pay for spending. So they've been doing a pretty good job. And and there's a sensible regulatory climate that's in Texas. And so by having that sort of institutional framework of a limited government, that allows us to be much more prosperous and, and overcome some of the obstacles, whether they're recessions or not in the economy. And so I think we will be better off um, after the recession. And, and, and one thing I should note too, Brad, is I really feel like 
this has been a period of malaise across the country. When you poll a lot of people that are out there, they feel like this is a bad economy. Um, when you look at the double dip, so there was a two-period declining real GDP in the first quarter and second quarter of 2022 that they don't want to date as a recession, I think for political reasons, but they didn't date it as a recession. And But I think it was. And I, I think that we're still feeling the remnants of this slow economic growth that's there. But Texas is able to have this more dynamic economy because we don't have a personal income tax and we have these other factors. So we're doing better, but there's still a lot of improvements that we need. Yeah, sure. I mean, we could always be better. You, you, yeah. you brought up no property tax. We could be better. You talked a little bit about, you mentioned it, sort of unproductive government spending. And there's the you know, latest job reports came out. I think the trend over the past year, the jobs report would come out and it would be reported really, you know, hey, we got strong numbers, 250,000, whatever the number is. And then you go back to it and actually was revised downward the next month. And so not quite as good as they initially reported, but no one ever hears about the downward revision. But they also, people don't really look into the actual details of it, the guts of it. And a lot of those are government jobs. And I think that you describe government jobs as unproductive jobs. I think some might argue, well, they're doing a service. Or surely that's productive, right? So what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean by that is that there's nothing that's being created. There's no value added to the economy from those government jobs. I'm not saying that there shouldn't be some of those government jobs. I think there are too many, but if there shouldn't be some of those because there are certain things that in our constitution, but at the federal level and the state level, there have been roles for government that have been set forth. And I think they're very limited roles, not doing nearly as much as what they're doing in so many areas of the, of our lives in the economy. But there are these roles, and uh, but they're there to serve us, right? They're there to serve the productive private sector. I served in government. I was the chief economist for the Office of Management and Budget in the Trump White House from June 2019 to May of 2020. So right during COVID and everything else, which is a whole other discussion to have. So I, I was receiving the taxpayer funds. So I understood where that money was coming from. But I don't know that I was productive. I mean, I did things that I think needed to get done. And there's paperwork and there's you're trying to do as much as possible to do good for the Americans or in Texas, if they're state workers or something else. But I don't know if there's anything productive or value added out of that. I do think that we need certain things in our system of, of capitalism, which is more social socialist and capitalist in a lot of ways these days, but you need private property rights. Well, who's going to do that most effectively? I think government. We need some sort of security and, and, and national defense. I think we should be more limited than what it is, but that's also going to be more like government because it's difficult to get private institutions to do those sort of things and to have a, you know, a blind justice system that goes in and looks at the facts. It's very difficult to do that, not outside of um, government. And, and so I think, and so I'm not a, you know, an anarchist or an anarcho-capitalist or anything like that. Pretty close, but, but I'm, more, I'm a classical liberal. And so I believe in limited roles for government in that sense. But I just don't think that they're, they're productive. I don't, I, there's no way that I can observe as an economist and say, these are productive jobs. This is where the value add is. And so I think they're unproductive. And Brad, you're right. They've been doing this for more than a year now of major revisions that I haven't seen in the decade plus that I've been looking at these numbers. And if you go further back, there weren't then either. So maybe ever that this is the largest revisions we've seen over the last year and a half. And just in for December, there was 216,000 jobs that they reported. Oh, man, strong economy. This is great. But yeah. then when you subtract out the 50, I think it was 55,000 jobs in the, in the unproductive government sector, and you subtract out the 71,000 jobs that were revised downward over the previous two months in October and November, you were only left with 95,000 productive jobs. 
yeah. in the private sector. And so that is not a strong economy. And if you look at the unemployment rate, if we included those people who had dropped out of the labor force during the, the pandemic, the lockdown recession, and you added them back in, the unemployment rate would be closer to 6.5%, not the reported 3.7%. So we've really got to look underneath the, the hood to see where these numbers are at. And that's what I try to do on my sub stack and in other places. Do you think the Texans are going to see true relief in, in property taxes? I know the past legislature just passed a you know pro property tax relief. We got, I think, if I'm not mistaken, we got a lot of our money back. Yeah. And when I saw the initial news, it was sort of a big deal. There's a, what was it, $30 billion budget over, they had more, whatever. Surplus. Surplus. There's the yep. word. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and I thought, well, you guys took too much of our money. And I'm really happy. And I, I think that the Texas legislature did a Texas legislature did a great job. Like, hey, we do have a lot of their money. We should send some of it back to them. And yeah. that's are we actually gonna see true property? Is that true property tax relief in your opinion? So so you're right that we had there was $32.7 billion in surplus, meaning excess collections from us, the taxpayer. The yeah. government doesn't have any money, right? It's all from us. That's another reason why they're unproductive workers. But and so what we see is that the amount of money that went to property tax relief, what's reported out there is that this is the largest property tax relief in Texas history. And even the world is, I think Lieutenant Governor Patrick said, but whenever you actually look at the numbers, it, they report that it's $18 billion. But we've got to remember that $5.3 billion of that was in the actual budget that they passed during the regular session. It's called House Bill 1. That was $5.3 billion to maintain property tax relief from prior sessions. So that would already, that was already baked in the cake. So that's not new property tax relief. That's old. So I don't even really count that. If you take out the 5.3, it's $12.7 billion that was actually for new property tax relief, which was less than the $14.2 billion that they passed in 2006 for 0708 with 0809 biennium. And so it was really the second largest amount of prop of new property tax relief. And so I've been trying to say that a lot out there, you know, but the politics will get such that they'll want to say it's the largest property tax relief to win votes and everything. I get that, but it's really the second largest. But I've also been looking at the data, Brad, where the comptroller recently released the new data on tax rates and levies for 2023. And what I'm calculating is that when you actually take in that $12.7 billion, you half it between the two years years. So it's really $6.3 billion worth of property tax relief each year. That only reduced prop school property taxes in Texas by about $4 billion for the year of, of 2023. So for last year, it went down a little over $4 billion instead of the $6.3 billion. So we didn't get all of that relief. And if you look at total property taxes, so you look at schools, counties, cities, and special purpose districts, all of them, we actually see a $350 million increase and property taxes collected across the state. So yes, school property taxes went down some because that's what they were focused on with the reducing school property tax rates by 10.7 cents per $100 valuation. They also had a raising of the homestead exemption from $40,000 up to $100,000. And then there was a 20% limitation on non-homesteaded property that's less than like $5 million to try to rein in some of that. But all that did was reduce school property taxes, but our total property taxes across the state are going to go up. Now, I, I should say, put a caveat in here that many people are going to see relief on their bill. I saw about a $1,000 cut in my property tax bill for this year. And my house is a little bit more than the, the, the average. But I don't think it's going to be nearly the relief that many people were claiming of like $1,400 or $1,500. I don't think you're going to see that because all the other taxes went up around them. 
there, there wasn't enough restraint on all these other local taxing entities. And one last thing here, Brad, is that the homestead exemption, while it helps out those with a homestead, and I, I like it myself, it sure. does mean that you're shifting the burden, just like those daycare exemptions. It means that we're not paying for it as much of the property tax, the amount of expenditures, but it's going to be paid for by who? By businesses, by those without a homestead, and by renters at, from, from apartment complexes and everyone else. They're going to pay a little bit more in property tax than, than we are. So it still just shifts the burden around. I wish what they would have done instead is take all the $12.7 and really they had more that they could have done, and use all of that to reducing the school MO property tax rates. And that's how you get to zero. You can't get to zero property taxes by raising the homestead exemption. You've got to lower those rates until they get all the way to zero. And that is sound fiscal policy. So you're a part of the sustainable budget project. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Right. That's right. So, so the website is atr.org forward slash budget project. So it's out of Americans for tax reform. That's a sustainable budget project. Y'all have a, a, a different systems for sort of fig, reining in government spending. Right. And you mentioned it earlier. And I think I have, I don't understand how it works. So I wanted to pick your brain about it a little bit, but it's, I, I think if people aren't familiar with these terms or familiar with economics or whatever, maybe their eyes just sort of glaze over. So I was going to maybe ask, all right, well, let's bring this down to like a five-year-old level, but it's rate of population growth plus inflation. And you can't increase taxes beyond that. Is that right? Yeah. Increase spending beyond increase that. Spending, sorry. Increase spending. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's the sustainable budget is to try to cover as much of the budget. So if you have your own household income, you see how much you bring in. A lot of times what the state will do and other local governments will just say, well, we're going to use half of our income and cover that amount of spending with a limit when really you've got to be worried about your own family income, the total amount. And so I think that is really what we're looking at is what does the state bring in? How much should they be putting out? And it should all be based on how much the average taxpayer can afford to pay for government spending. Since the government doesn't have any money, it's got to come from them. Let's put it on them, not appropriators. I don't necessarily care how much they need to spend. I want to know how much they're pulling out of the private sector economy. And that's what this is all about, is to say, let's cover as much as the budget as possible by a growth limit of no more than population growth plus inflation. So if you have more people, you have inflation that's typically connected with wage growth, not as much the last couple of years, but historically that's been the case. So you have more people, more wages, they could pay for a little bit more in services to the economy, but that's also a maximum. It doesn't mean you should make it a target. I think the government's already spending too much, but allows for us to have some sort of barometer uh, metric to use to see how much we should actually rein in government spending. Because for too long, you know, fiscal conservatives like myself have been saying, let's rein in the growth of government. Let's restrain it. But we didn't have anything. There was no tangibility to it to know what exactly that means. And what this does is it says, OK, don't spend more than X. Don't spend more than this amount in this next budget cycle. And Texas has been doing a good job of that for a few sessions until this last one, whenever they blew through it, they spent about 30% increase compared to a 16% increase in population growth plus inflation. So about twice that amount just in state funds. But it but it, it does allow us to get back on track until they put this into state law for what how much government should be spending. And that, of course, will help us to keep taxes lower. And if you have surpluses, this is another important reason, Brad, that it's on the spending side, is it says, okay, if we limit spending to population plus inflation, we should have revenue that comes in faster than that, because typically it does, historically over time. And what do we do with the surplus then? You should be reducing property, school property tax rates with a large part of that, of that budget surplus over time. Yeah. 
So uh, I guess the reason why it's population growth plus inflation, if 10 more people move to, you know, your neighborhood needs to accommodate services for 10 more people. So right. is that, and yep. then inflation, if it costs, you know, 3% more this year to do it, then you do that. So that's why it's that those two numbers. Well, that's if you look at it from the government's perspective, sure. but I like to look at it from the taxpayer's perspective. So what I'm thinking is if you have 10 more people, you have 10 more people that can, that could pay taxes. Sure. into the system. And for the inflation, it's tied to my wage growth. So even the people that are still in the area of Round Rock, their wages go up, they could pay a little bit more in taxes. And, yeah. and so that way it's not growing, government's not growing more than the average taxpayer's ability to pay for the government spending. Because the, the other side is that if you have more people, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need more government. We don't need a new school just because we have 10 new people. We don't need a new road just because we have 10 new people, right? But you're serving people in other ways of why you might need a little bit more in taxes to spend. And, and if inflation's going up, you know, a lot of the things that government buys, like cement and a lot of things they, they buy, is actually dominated by government purchases. So they control a lot of those markets. So if we looked at the inflation from the cost that the government's paying, it's a downward spiral to where they can really drive the prices to whatever they want to pay. So that's that's why I always put it back over to the, the taxpayer side. So, I mean, you mentioned the Texas, which is, it's great to hear. Texas sort of has, they've done great with their budget over the past week. This past session, I guess, excluded from that. Yeah. But generally, we do a good job of controlling our spending is what I'm hearing. But Texas doesn't necessarily use this metric. Is that right? Well, they, they hadn't. So we have a spending limit in Texas. It's based on personal income growth, which is usually grows faster than population plus inflation. Then myself and several others, we had been pushing the state to adopt a, a stronger spending limit based on population growth and inflation. And they did. It, it, it took us 50, 2015, 2017, 2019, three sessions, nothing happened. In 2021, they passed it. It covers more of the budget, about 55% of the budget, instead of 45% of the budget, the previous spending limit. And it's based on population growth times inflation. So it's a slight difference of, I don't know, a couple hundredths of a percentage point compared to just population growth plus inflation. Yeah. So it is a stronger spending limit. It's in statute, meaning in law. What we'd like to see is that be put in the constitution because the constitution still has the old spending limit based on personal income growth. So I, they've seen the Texas legislature and the leadership have seen the benefits of population and inflation. They put it in the law. Let's go ahead and expand on it into the constitution as well. And we'll be setting the stage for Texas to have this strong Texas model for much, you know, much longer into the future. The federal debt has grown, grown 19 trillion since mm. 2003. Had this been the metric, it'd only be 500 billion. Yep. Um, I think that's great. That's great as an American. That's great as a taxpayer. That's fantastic. I wish that our national debt was that low. Yeah. Um, still high, but whatever. We can handle it. But how do we get politicians? And it sounds like Texan. Texas politicians are listening and you're almost there to getting on the constitution end, which is great too. But how do you get at that past mile? How do you get politicians to listen when politicians are sort of reliant on this debt spending to get reelected to, you know, to do all of these different programs so that they can say, Hey, vote for me again. Yeah. It's a big problem. And economics, we call it rent seeking where, you know, they, they're acting rationally, just like we act rationally out in the private sector, marginal costs and marginal benefits. I had to bring some economics into it, Brad. You also have, yeah, <laughs> you also have politicians that do that, but they have different marginal costs and marginal benefits where one of those is not based on the private sector activity. It's based on winning re-election. And so they have to make different decisions than what we do. And unfortunately, that creates a lot of other problems. And so what you'll see from the Republicans is that they'll cut taxes, but they won't want to rein in government spending. 
So I'm all for cutting taxes. Don't get me wrong. I think the Trump tax cuts were big for the economy and everything else, but they were just as they, they violated the uh, the ability to cut spending or at least rein in the growth of spending. Had they done that, there wouldn't have been a massive debt because over that period you just mentioned from 2003 to 2022, that two decade period of $19 trillion in national debt, that included tax cuts, the Bush tax cuts, Obama extended the Bush tax cuts, the Trump tax cuts. But if we would just rein in government spending to population plus inflation, then we would have only had a $500 billion increase in national debt over 20 years. So yeah. It wasn't just one, one year or anything. So we would have had surpluses in a lot of those years as well. And so it's not a tax pro a revenue problem. It is a spending problem. And we've got to focus on that. And so I think by messaging it like the sustainable budget is, is doing, this project is doing, we can do a better job of showing that this can work. Because I think that's the other thing is they get tied up into, oh, man, it's just too much of a problem. You feel overwhelmed. I get that way sometimes with my kids. There's too many issues, things going on at one time. And so by breaking it down and saying, look, start here. Let's start redefining the narrative that spending is the problem. Here's what we could do to really create a better situation for families all across the country and not have a huge national debt. I think these are the things that will change the, the marginal cost, marginal benefit decisions for a lot of these politicians to say, you know what? This is something we've got to do for, for America. People want to talk about America first. If you're not talking about cutting government spending or reining it in, I don't see how you're looking out for the, the for America first because this is what is really indebting um, us today and future generations. You know, you make a strong point, that's for sure. <laughs> I want to ask you one more question on this and then I want to bring it to minimum wage and then we can wrap up. We're at $34 trillion in debt. What do we do about that? It's, it's a massive problem, but debt per taxpayer is $264,000. That yeah. means you and I, Brad, we owe $264,000. But if you take it debt per citizen, meaning for every man, woman, and child, you have $101,000 that's owed. So just in my household of five, we owe like $500,000 if you look at a man, woman, yeah. and child. It, so, so it is massive, but I think breaking it down into these types of numbers to really make that this is a reality that we're facing for the future of our country will help it to come home to roost for a lot of families to be like, you know what, we need to vote differently. Because ultimately, it's up to the voters, right? But politicians are going to do what their voters want for the most part. And, and so I think it's also up to them to say, you know what, this is a problem. We've got to just start doing something about that. The last big rise up we saw was the Tea Party of 2010. And we saw a lot of, you know, I, I think we're good fiscal conservatives that went into office to try to do the right thing. But as soon as they got power, a lot of the Republicans, they took it in a different direction of more spending. And so we've got to get back to this idea that this, there, nothing is free. There's no free lunch, as Milton Friedman, my favorite economist, used to say. And the debt has a huge cost. And many people say, well, we haven't seen higher interest rates or inflation. We've seen that recently. We've seen massive increases in, in inflation. We've seen massive increases in interest rates. And, and that's another reason why I think that this economy is weak and will be a tough time to get through 2024. Yeah, I keep saying 2024 is going to be wild with everything. Mm -hmm. But the idea of a minimum wage, and for a long time, we had the fight for 15. There was a big hashtag that was going around on, you know, X, formerly Twitter. So there's hashtag, hashtag fight for 15. That's sort of waned a little bit. And I'm thinking, well, you know, we got an election coming up, so maybe that'll have maybe a little bit of a resurgence. But with inflation and everything, I wonder if they'll revise that up to a, a fight for 30. And I always wonder, well, why not a fight for 100? Why don't you just pick the highest salary and say, why not fight for that? Well, everyone gets that. You know, what's the difference? Is this, why is a minimum wage increase a bad idea? And alternatively, is minimum wage in general a bad idea? Yeah, as of January 1st, 22 states 
raised their minimum wage. So it's a great time to be talking about this. January 1st, 2024. Only 10 states match the federal minimum wage now, which is $7.25, was last increased um, by Congress in 2006 and signed into law by President George W. Bush. Most people forget that. And it, so it went up in, 08, in, in 07, 08, 09. So they went up to 7.25. So, but a lot of states have now been increasing their minimum wage over time to where California and New York are now at $16 an hour. $16 an hour is already their minimum wage. Washington is, they have the highest in the nation now. And it is at, oh, I thought I had it here, but it's a little bit over $16 an hour. And so when you're looking at these, there's a lot of states that have it higher than, than 725 already, but the there's a huge cost to this. The, a lot of those states that already have high minimum wages are also the people that are places that are losing people because yeah. it's difficult to find a job, especially on the early rings of the ladder. The, who are those that are really making the minimum wage? When you dive into the demographics and the data here, it shows that they are the ones that are low skilled and the ones with the least experience and, and young. All those three things go together, which makes sense. But 16 to 24 year olds, about 55 to 60% of minimum wage earners are 16 to 24 years old, which yeah. means that they have other income from their parents. Maybe they're in college and they get student loans. And I mean, there's other income that they're getting during that time. So it's not like they're living out on the streets and can't buy something. There are very few examples of where you actually have a single mom with multiple, you know, with multiple kids who, you know, these are the stories that people like to tell of the worst case examples. And those are bad cases. I'm not saying that there's anything good about that, but right. that's very few and far between. And the, the minimum wage is really an arbitrary number that was put in place during the Great Depression by Congress and then FDR signed into law during a period where we were in our worst economic situation ever. And I would argue that was mostly caused by government. Whenever you look at the Smoot-Hawley tariff bill of during the Hoover administration, the Federal Reserve, they printed too much money in the late 20s, and then they cut the money supply. Anyway, there was a lot of government cause to that. It was government failure. It wasn't market failure. But they came in and put in all this new stuff, crap, into the economy and distorted the economic situation and the labor market. And a lot of these groups, especially progressive groups across the country, have continued to run on this and say, we need to fight for 15, that this is the wage that we need without looking at this is really where I get into a lot of this stuff with a lot of my friends and, and, and concern even those on the right like the national conservatives is that they're coming up with a lot of government solutions without looking at the root cause of the problem and the root cause of the problem is nine times or nine 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 point nine 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 times out of ten the government yeah. So you can't double down on failure. And so a lot of these people are trying to come up with a higher minimum wage in order to solve this problem of people making too low of income without understanding why people are making so low of income. Well, is it occupational licensing by states that's keeping people from being entrepreneurial and going into cosmetology or something else where they can be making a lot more money? Well, possibly. Could it be that too many people are locked up and imprisoned for lower nonviolent crimes, for drug use or something else when they probably shouldn't be, I would argue. You know, those sort of things. And so I think if we have a more vibrant economy of lower taxes, less government spending, less in handouts and more hand ups, this would create a situation where more people would work and we'd have fewer people in poverty and there would be no need for a minimum wage. The minimum wage is a labor market regulation that distorts the decision between the employer and the employee and will constantly have the need to keep raising it to an arbitrary amount because people will never find a lowest minimum wage that they like. And I think if we have the reality of who's actually getting it, that it's only 1.5% of the labor force in, in Texas, for example, that even earns the minimum wage, that the average wage is close 
closer to $18, $20 an hour, it's much higher than that, then we can start to get to reality of that we don't need a minimum wage. And we certainly don't need to be raising it. <clears throat> so two questions. If I can't provide value, let's use the California example, what is it, $16 an hour? If yep. I can provide $16 worth of uh, value to an employer, what's my real minimum wage going to be? Zero. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so, and then final question, the Southern border is such a huge topic nowadays, obviously in Texas and everything that the governor's doing with the busing. And, you know, now it seems like everybody's talking about it, including the sanctuary cities when, and just talking about minimum wage, you know, I always wonder, okay, well, we have this massive influx for breaking records, all of these low skilled workers that oftentimes fly under the radar as far as jobs go. What do they do to the people that are, you know, the people that are trying to find a minimum wage job? Like, do they make it, aren't they taking those jobs and doing it for less? Not all the time, but it's a good point. And it's one that I try to make out there often is that there's not one labor market. Sure. There are multiple labor markets within the labor market because there's low skilled, there's mid skilled, there's high skilled. So there's a lot of people that are competing in the marketplace every day for different jobs and for wages and everything else, which is one reason why the minimum wage hurts those of the lower income so much is because that is the market that they're hurting. So when you're raising the wage, it's going to hurt those who with little skills first. They're going to let go of those people and keep the ones with higher skills. Yeah. Another thing here when you raise the minimum wage is connecting these dots. It also incentivizes there to be more illegal immigration because <laughs> yeah. you could pay them less than what you would those people who are now making the, the legally binding minimum wage. And so that creates even more demand for those people. So this is really is a, a demand issue where there's a lot of labor shortages where Americans maybe don't want to work or they're not, at least not at that wage. And, and it would be too costly and unprofitable for these small businesses to employ them. But there's also a demand or a supply issue where many people are wanting to leave their place, especially in Central America, South America, that were locked down for a lot longer period of time where their economies have not come up very much at all. They're leaving this level of poverty to try to go to the new land, right? And this promise that brings. And I think there's something beautiful about that in the sense of America has always been about immigration and about immigrants coming here. The issue is that we have a failed immigration system. I've been on record many times, Brad, and I don't know where you're at on all this stuff, but I, I don't think that a border wall by itself is going to solve the problem. Sure. It's going to slow down the problem, but it's not going to solve the problem. We're going to keep spending a lot more money. Ta Texas taxpayers have already spent, I think it's about $6 billion on this. We can get all the money we want from D.C., but we really need immigration reform at the congressional level. And it's unfortunate that everybody's putting so much pressure and pointing the fingers at the wall saying we need to do this without pointing the fingers back at Congress and be like, do your dang job. Yeah. Get this thing under control because you we're going to put Band-Aid upon Band-Aid. And that's what I see as the wall as a Band-Aid of a more fundamental issue that people want to be here. We need immigrants. We have a, a generational accounting problem. We have a lot of boom baby boomers retiring and that are going to be dying and a fewer number of people coming into the system that's going to bankrupt Social Security and Medicare, which we need major reforms to those as well. But we have these quotas of how many people can be here of immigrants. We, we, we don't have a, a proper pricing mechanism is what I'd like to bring up, a market-based reform to immigration that allows for prices to signal where people should go. So that way that businesses and employers can pay for the visa for those people to come here to work for a while. And then you can hold the employer and the worker accountable for whenever that visa is over for them to go back. And I know that's problematic because will that actually happen and everything else? But I think that this will provide a more accountable system and it will provide funds to the government through those fees for us to either lower taxes to make it more 
profitable to do business here in America? Because we can't just point the fingers at everyone else and say, it's okay, it's these immigrants' problems, it's China's problem. Because then when you do that, you've got three more fingers that are pointing back at you. And I think that we have too high of taxes, too much spending, too many regulations, too much cost of doing business in America, that it's incentivizing us to go overseas, to have more people from other countries come here and everything else. And so I know that there's a lot of talk about blaming others, but I think there's a lot we need to be doing to uh, improve our country and improve our institutional framework. I talk a lot about that because that's my research is institutions yeah. and the importance of institutions to where civil society is back at the front again and government is at the back. Too often government is now the first resort for every single problem and, and it can't do it. it. It's not meant to do that. Yeah. It should be at the back the last resort and civil society and families and friends and churches, that's where we need to get back to. And I just don't see how we're going to do that. If we keep expanding government, whether it's in Texas or in so many other places across the country. And a big part of this right now is on illegal immigration. I think we need a better approach to it than what's being done. Yeah. You say that we need, do we just need Congress to go do their job? Yeah. Well, I mean, we may need, I mean, we may need Congress to build a wall so we can bang our head up against it. If that, <laughs> No, that was really well said. I appreciate that. You know, lots of great information in there. Obviously, you think about this stuff very deeply, and that's why you do so much and why you're part of so many different organizations. And I, I appreciate you coming on and sharing that expertise with us. I hope you enjoyed this discussion with Brad Swill of Texas Talks. Please go and check him out wherever you can. But also be sure to subscribe to my Let People Prosper podcast and to my newsletter, advancedgain.substack.com, where you can get all these directly in your inbox, along with all the show notes and everything else. And until next time, let people prosper.